Thanks so much for listening to Pastor Josh from Redemption Church. If you're ever in the Johannesburg area, come and visit us. We would love to host you. For all of our resource and content, check out our website at www.redemptionchurch.co.za. All of our podcasts are available for free. Be blessed as you listen to this message. Today I want to talk to you about faith that triumphs during trouble. Um, you know, we don't, you don't need to be a brain, a brain scientist to work out, okay, there's issues around the world today. Um, and there's issues in our nation. And, uh, you know, I'm just pumped about the fact that um, I, I don't believe South Africa lacks leadership, to be very honest with you. I think it lacks leadership in leadership. Um, but we have leaders. We have people that actually have the capacity to take our nation forward. We just need to pray and trust God that they find themselves in office. And uh, I'm pumped about, you know, everybody complained about the Chief Justice being a spirit-filled, charismatic Christian. Did you notice that when he got, like, made, like, Chief Justice, it was like, oh, he's anti-gays, he's anti-this. Okay, am I the only one who remembers that? It was like the end of the world. But I'm pumped that a Christian stood up and said no. Um, And actually, the pressure must have been huge on that guy. Um, to, to, to allow an unconstitutional thing. And I'm just pumped a Christian stood up and said, hey, we're going to take a stand and fight for our nation. So I, I'm excited about where our country's going. And I, and I believe that we have people. We're just going to trust God that they end up in leadership. And I believe that we will see that come. But at the moment, it's not an easy life in South Africa. It's not, it's not easy around the world. I mean, even like these quaint uh, cities in Europe are having shaking issues. And uh, so we look around ourselves and we have to admit, I wouldn't equate the current climate economically um, with humanity, with the environment as like um, smooth sailing. Uh, Current atmosphere out there with everything from our weather patterns through to our leaderships through to uh, the war that is going on with terror and religious freedom and all those kinds of things. Um, it's trouble times, correct? Right? So there might be some of you here today and your life is amazing and it is unbelievable. Everything is perfect. That's awesome. Um, I'm going to preach to me today because I have to be honest with you that I don't feel like I don't feel a, an ease of life outside of church. Like I spend time with God and it feels amazing and then we get out into the world. You know, Tara and I were talking about cars the other day and, um, you know, um, I went and put my deposit down on a Rolls Royce Phantom and we're just excited about that. And I'm joking, okay. I'm teasing. Um, but we were just talking about cars the other day and we were talking about like, and I said, oh, that's a cool color. And I like cars, um, and so we were just looking at cars, not to buy, just driving, and I said, and then it was funny, because she said, yeah, you know, I like that color too, like a gunmetal gray, and I dig it with the, when people have a gunmetal gray car, not an Uno Fiat, um, like Fire 2001 uh, in gunmetal gray, but like a decent car in gunmetal gray with sprayed black mags. Um, The East is rubbing off on me, okay? So just work with me, you know? Um, but I, you know, like, it was interesting because she was like, yeah, but it's not white and, you know, you want a car that you can see at night and it's safer. It's interesting how we gauge, like, all our decisions based around bad driving of other people and security in your home and all these kinds of things. So, like, I'll be honest with you. I don't leave, like, and go into the world net. I don't wake up on a Monday morning, like, singing with the birds. I find myself, like, troubled by what's going on. 
I mean, you just haven't, we haven't had a week without some international crisis. If it's not our economy, it's people killing innocent people, it's, there's something insane going on, diseases on pregnant women, it's just mull. With that being said, um, I, I tend to find myself um, going through some natural emotions, and so this sermon today is for me. So if any of you get nothing out of this, just know your pastor got ministered to today. So we're talking about faith that, that triumphs in trouble. Now, this is not a title I came up with. This is not something I was trying to like find some kind of, let's get you all excited today and keep you happy. This is something that we find in our Bible. So we're going to jump into Romans chapter 5. And 5 is the number of grace. Wherever you see 5 across the Bible, it's the number of grace. And so I want us to talk about faith that triumphs in trouble. And faith is an amazing subject. And it's preached on all over the world. Faith is, is, is an amazing subject because when you have faith, you can lack in everything else in your life and still possess. You can be broke today and have faith. And in the supernatural, what you have received, what you have will speak to the natural. Faith is a beautiful thing. The Bible loves faith. The challenge though with faith is it's preached like a work. In other words, it is preached that it's your responsibility to possess it and to do it and to have it. So in other words, we preach about faith, 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 faith. And usually we attach that to an instruction. By an instruction, I mean this. Most pastors land with some kind of a financial contribution. You know, faith, 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 faith. And at the end of the service, land and give money, okay? That is not what faith is. Faith is not a work that you have that you decide to possess. You don't walk out this door today and say, by faith, I'm going to do this. Because the challenge with that kind of faith is it leaves you lacking the currency to activate or to release it. Because the currency for faith is a belief system, not a behavior. The behavior is a response to the belief. What is the belief? The belief is not that you are going to do something. The belief is that Jesus has done enough for you. So faith is a response to a gospel which says Christ has died for us when we were sinners, before you were a good person, before you did anything good, he decided to die for you. Your faith is your belief that he died for you and your belief that when he died for you, he wiped out your sin and he reconciled you to himself. So in order for us to possess faith, the Bible then always identifies a secondary thing that goes alongside faith. And that is this topic, subject, word called grace. Now grace is not a doctrine. It's not a book. It's not a part of Christianity. Grace is Jesus. You cannot have grace outside of a revelation of Jesus. Grace is an unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor, which is what the cross is, right? So when we have this understanding, we start to have a different thing because faith is not meant to be a burden. If you're ever in a service and faith is preached like, wow, I wish I could have faith like that person. I guess I don't have enough faith. 
I guess I don't possess enough. I don't have the boldness. I don't have the works to back it up. You're missing. It's been taught incorrectly. Because what I see in the Bible is people with a lot of works behind them, being Pharisees and Sadducees, they would be around Jesus and receive nothing. But the people with zero works, who were lepers and, I mean, all kinds of issues, came to Jesus and said, hey, I mean, the fact that they approached him in itself was breaking the law, but they just went to him going, we've heard you heal people like me. Like I've heard you do things for people who have issues. And so all they had to believe was that Jesus' supply was for their need, right? And Jesus calls this faith. He responds to people approaching him who have no religious works behind their names and just saying, I know you'll heal me. He responds to that as your faith, correct? But they saw him in his grace because they believed he would do it for them, an undeserving person according to the law. So, so faith is not you moving God, it's you receiving God's desire to provide for you. So your bankruptcy is what qualifies you to receive. So with that in, in, in context, we need to look at this passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 5 because it's, it's been titled, Faith That Triumphs in Trouble. You guys can lift the mic up a bit in the crowd and in the front. So cool. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll never have peace with God through a work. Like, because if peace comes through how much you serve, pray, give, then in order to attain peace, you have to raise the stakes. You notice how like with medicine, people will tell you, you build up a tolerance. And so when we make it about peace is attained, like, like, listen, man, just serve some more and you'll find rest. No, we get peace through Jesus because it's only through the revelation that, hey, the cross finished it all. It, it, it put me in, in, in reconciliation with God once and for all. Then we can receive peace, but it's only through Jesus Christ, through whom we have access by faith into this grace. So it's faith in Christ that puts us into grace. And then it says, in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So let's read it again. Therefore, having just been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we stand on grace and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Knowing that tribulations produce perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, what people preach about is this, right? That we glory in tribulations because tribulations produce perseverance and perseverance produces hope. I mean, produces character and character produces hope. Now, I just wanna throw uh, uh, myself under the bus this morning and let you know, that in most of, most of tribulations in my life, <clears throat> they don't produce perseverance or character or hope. In fact, when the going gets tough, I have a real unique ability to start the opposite. So when I go through a trial or a tribulation, my first question is, 
Like, how unfair is life? Seriously, you know, like how unfair is this what I'm going through? This is a nightmare. The second thing then, once I go, woe is me, is my character, not the Bible character, not the fruits of the spirit, but the fruits of the flesh then come out. So now I want to unpack why this is going wrong in my life. This country, this economy, this, 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 this. I don't know. Maybe I'm the only person here today, and please pray for your pastor if that's the case. But I, I don't find myself relating to this scripture. I do not find a tribulation is creating in me these magical glory. I, I do not glory in tribulation. I am not going, this is amazing. This is wonderful. This is going to produce perseverance. This is going to produce character. Do you know what I'm trying to say? I don't know if you relate, but I tend to get negative and upset, and this is unfair, and this is... So what on earth is Paul talking about? What is this oak on about? Because I seriously do not relate. Now, I know some pastors out there preach, and you're just literally like, this guy's the holiest man on earth. I mean... He's the closest to God. But I'm always going to lay it on the ground. Because I just want you to know, if you're looking for a perfect pastor, really, you need to change church. Uh, but I do not glory in tribulation. Because something is wrong. Something in me has happened. So we see how Paul talks about this. In verse, in verse 3, we glory in tribulation Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. If I look at this perseverance, character, hope, insane statement about how this produces something awesome, there is something that is amiss because if I am finding myself not glorying in tribulation, all right? And Paul is saying that we can. Surely there's something up. Well, it's, it's actually all there. First and foremost, it says in the first few verses, we have faith in Jesus Christ. And because of faith in Jesus Christ, we stand in grace, all right? So in other words, it's describing what our gospel should be doing for us. We should have faith that what Jesus has done for us is enough and that he did die, he was rose again, it was for my sin that has been removed. And because I have been declared one, reconciled to God, I now stand not in my effort in the Ten Commandments, I stand in a new covenant that is grace. Standing in grace, I find myself glorying over tribulation because I understand that when tribulation comes against me and I stand in grace, my response is perseverance, character, and a hope that never disappoints. But here's the crux, and we, I just want you to highlight this. It says here that because, so it says hope does not disappoint because, therefore, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Here's what I want to say to you today. You need to understand that the Bible speaks quite delicately and severely and, and adamantly around the subjects of the heart. 
It, in fact, the Bible never describes the heart, in my, in my understanding, as this, this muscle that, that, that is, like, is, is meant to be like trained and worked out and stood upon and is resilient. It actually speaks about it like a very delicate, gentle subject. In fact, the language given to uh, the heart is, is to guard it with all diligence. In other words, like if you have a child who's born and it's, it's clasping at life and it's in the most... Uh, most incubated uh, uh, um, kind of cordoned off uh, part of the ICU. It's kind of like described, like guard it with all diligence. Give, your, give everything to protecting your heart. Give everything to making sure your heart is, is nurtured and cared for. The Bible says that out of the heart, like the matters of, and the issues of life will flow. And your, your heart is like, it's almost a place where, where, if something happens good there, amazing things can happen in your life. And if something bad happens there, it can bring about some negative stuff in your life. You know, if a child is young and gets molested, its body heals, right? But it's that imprint on its heart. Now, what's amazing to me is if I was to analyze myself, looking at this passage of scripture, why am I complaining? Why am I not persevering? I'm like, give up, I'm done, forget this, over with this. Hope, are you kidding me? Like, don't be so naive, don't possess hope. When, I, when, I, when I'm going through a trial and my response is the opposite of this passage of scripture and I analyze me, I find that something has happened, which is very interesting, because we have the intro into the spirit, which is we are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. We have this revelation of Jesus. We stand in grace. And then at the tail end of the facing tribulations with perseverance, character, and hope is, is that love has been poured out upon our hearts, and the Holy Spirit has partnered with God in this ministry over us. When I look at this and I assess myself and I find myself in negativity, do you know what's happened? This is what's happened. There's been a challenge, a trial, a tribulation. It's really actually irrelevant whether I have played a role in this mess or I am just kind of a part of it. Like it's irrelevant whether I've actually gone and physically done something or practically done something to mess things up or whether I'm just a part of a messed up situation. What I find the devil does strategically is he approaches me with an accusation. He approaches me with an accusation and he packages it this way. He packages it around the fact that it is my fault. So even if your business is failing because of an outside influence, the devil comes with an accusation that ends with you taking responsibility. So I'm not even just talking about you took all the money and you went to emperors and it's gone. Okay, but in, in any circumstance, we acknowledge there's a mess. But what the devil does is he comes and he drops in your heart an accusation that says it's, you. You're the reason the relationship's struggling. 
Now, even if you are, just cheer me out. Follow me on this, on this path. You're the reason the business is struggling. You're the reason your health is. You, you, you haven't exercised enough, eaten enough, da 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 da, da. Even, even, have you ever noticed like, the devil's even got a way of making you remorse decisions you never took, let alone the ones you did. Like, I, I didn't do, I missed that. I missed out on that opportunity. You have a friend who's exploded in business and immediately, instead of being like, hey, I'm so excited for him, it's like, what have I done wrong? Like, what, what about me? Okay, so you get, this, you get this accusation that gets dropped in your heart. That accusation is underlined with the emotion or the, or should I say, the sense, the feeling of condemnation. Condemnation is simply, you've missed God, you've messed up, you're out of favor. If we look in this passage of scripture, Romans chapter five, it talks all about from 12 all the way through to 18, how basically you've been justified in Jesus. You were condemned in Adam, but you've been justified in Jesus. Then it ends off by saying, in verse uh, 19, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that offense might abound. By the way, anybody who tells you that the Ten Commandments are given to make us more holy doesn't read this book. Just letting you know. Nowhere is it accredited that the Ten Commandments made us better people. It's Ten Commandments are given so that you fail obviously. So that what was, what was the truth, but not, in essence, what was not against us, we were all sinning, but before the Ten Commandments came, Jesus, uh, God's grace was over us. They were still getting supplied, even though they murmured and complained. The second they said, we can earn our way to righteousness. In other words, it's no longer about your goodness, God. It's not gonna be about our goodness. God goes, okay, fine. If you wanna know where you really stand, here's the Ten Commandments. And the first thing that happens is sin and death all over the place. So here Paul is saying that the law entered that offense might abound, but where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness. Now, can you see Paul is trying to get us to understand he wants you to get into the grace space so that you will find grace reigning with righteousness through Christ Jesus. It's a good thing that grace is reigning in your life. Can, can you see that according to scripture? He's trying to say, on one side you have death, condemnation. On the other side, you have justification and righteousness. So when we look at this, it's common sense that we look at this and we say, Paul is trying to say, I want grace to reign in your life. I want it to flow. I want it to be of use to you. Paul actually says, for pastors out there that preach that grace is very dangerous. You need to understand something. Now, I'm not talking about we all get to heaven. All roads lead to Rome, okay? I believe very specifically grace exists only in the recognition that Jesus died for us and that he is Lord and Savior, all right? It's not, it's not, a, it's not a doctrine of you can do whatever you like. It's a doctrine of you need to believe the truth about who is the Lord and Savior who is the only access point to heaven and eternal life, okay? But we need to understand that for grace to flow in our life, it needs righteousness. Now, some of us would sit here today and say, 
Absolutely. Grace needs righteousness. The goodness of God needs to flow with righteousness. But righteousness in this passage of Scripture is not aligned with your hard work. In other words, some of you would say in order for grace to flow, I would need to be serving more. Like what can I do to qualify me for grace to flow in my life? What can I do as a righteous act or what I would perceive as righteousness, serve in church, run a regroup, lead someone to Christ? Like what can I actively do so that grace is flowing? And this is where people miss it. Grace flows through a righteousness, but the righteousness described in this passage of scripture is never referred to as human's righteousness. It's not, it's not people's righteousness. It's the righteousness, in fact, in this passage of scripture is described as a gift through Jesus Christ. A free gift, by the way. So in this context, this is what happens in our lives. The devil comes with an accusation when you fail. Even when you don't fail, the devil can make it your problem. Like, like let me give you an example. People here might know someone suffering. Maybe your child is making bad decisions. Maybe your spouse is in a bad place. The devil can make that your fault. Your business is struggling. You lose a contract. Oh, have you been praying? Now, let me just say this. I want our church to pray. You gotta pray because praying is speaking the promises of God over your life, speaking protection and speaking provision. But you don't need to pray with the mindset of trying to convince God. So you don't need to wail. You don't need to fall on your face and roll on the ground and weep. In other words, like, okay, if I do this more dramatically, I turn God's countenance towards me. Because actually, we do not pray from an unfinished work, like I need to try finish this off before God releases the answer. We pray from the identity of a finished work. So that's why Jesus, when he raises Lazarus, he's not running up and down. Like praying, 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 praying. Anoint me, baptize me before I do this. Anoint me, baptize me before I do this. Get, bring that apostle who claims he can break curses. All right? He just says, God, I know that you hear me. Lazarus, come forth. His prayer is, I have the ear of heaven because I'm perfect, righteous without sin. So we pray like that with the confidence that we are declared righteous. The Bible says the prayer of the righteous avails much. You pray from your identity of a righteousness that Christ has given you in a finished work. So we need to pray. But let me just say this. When I say we need grace to flow and we've got to be careful about trying to bring our righteousness, this is how the devil catches us out. Simply put, he condemns you and says, you're the reason there's problems in your life. Another lie out there is God sends problems to make you closer to him. That's a lie. It does not say every, every gift from above or some are a gift, but this is a gift, but it's not really, it's cancer, but you'll get to know God. No, that's not from God, okay? And I, I, I don't care what scripture you bring, you cannot call him a good father and think that he gives cancer to you to make you like him more, okay? Because then we should all be praying for cancer because our objective is to know Jesus more, Amen. So then we should all be praying that we go through such hell, we get to know him more. Because if that's what holiness is, then let's be realistic about holiness. It's amazing to me that people that believe about the sovereignty of God and the will of God and, oh, you know, if you die, it's the will of God. If you don't, it's the will of God. If you heal, it's the will of God. Let me just say this, then, then, then why do you go to a doctor if you're sick? Because you're interfering. 
No, the character of God is our sustenance, his love for us, his, his cherishing of us. Now, when we go through a trial, we lean on that love. But trust me, he did not send the trial to you. He did not say, oh, I'm going to bless you with problems. All right? Because then why redeem the earth to a, to a land without problems? Then the most holy place should be hell, not heaven, because there's the most problems. More people will be getting saved in hell if it was about suffering, producing holiness. Come, there's just no logic sometimes. So we understand then that he comes with a condemnation. And with that condemnation, we all know that where there is a failure, there needs, it needs to be restored. It needs to be redeemed. So here's how the devil catches us out. He gives us an identity and he gets to our heart with a condemning thing. You, you, you. Our response in our natural self is, I now acknowledge there's a failure, acknowledge there's a fault. I must fix it. I must sort this out. I must set this right. There is a condemnation and now there's a need for a righteousness. But the problem is we get caught up in the wrong cycle because we bring a self-righteousness. Now, self-righteousness is not just being a good Christian. Self-righteousness is the attempt to justify yourself through your own effort. So I'll give it to you my way. We had record attendance at Easter. So many people got saved. One of my buddies in the States, so I think we had, I don't know, with adults and kids, whatever you want to call it. Seven, eight hundred people in one on, on a Sunday or the Friday or whatever. And we had 70 something visitors and people get saved. So I'm like, yay. And one of my buddies, his church is two years old, had nearly 7,000 people. He's in America, all right? Naturally, okay? So he had all these people attend. So I'm looking at social media, I'm like, wow, okay. Um, yeah, guess redemption is not really where God is moving. Yes, I'm not really doing anything significant for God. No, I wasn't angry at you. I was angry at me because I felt like I was failing. So then my response to that is I show up at the office and I'm like, okay, everybody, I've got a list of 50 things we're going to do now because we need to get ourselves right. Now, hear me out. I'm not saying be lazy. I'm just giving you. So I pick up a accusation. My response then is I need to now propel us, me. Problem with your righteousness is number one, the Bible calls it filthy rags. In other words, it's actually incapable of producing a healthy womb and life. And while you're trying to fix your problem and your own righteousness, you fail some more. And so what comes out of this tribulation is you put yourself in a perpetual cycle where what's coming out of your mouth is the opposite of perseverance, character, and hope. And do you know what else happens? Your heart gets hard. Now, nobody in this place here goes, I want to hate God. I should hope not. But nobody in this place is like, I want to, I want to make him, I want to hate him. I want my heart to be hard. No, but here's the thing. Your heart picks up these accusations. And as you fail, you identify with yourself more as a failure and more as a failure and more as a failure. And then you start to get angry because it feels like you're in a cycle with God where you cannot win. You can only lose. And here's the thing that you will do, I guarantee you, each and every single person here. You will not let God love you. 
because you will not believe you're worthy of his love. Paul says you'll break the cycle if you'll let him pour out his love upon you. If you'll let him just pour it out. If you'll let him love you, it'll break down every other barrier. But it's in your heart where your identity, the imprint exists of who you are and what you've done and what you haven't done. So this faith that Paul is speaking about, that triumphs over trouble, has nothing to do with you going out there and putting up a bigger show as a Christian and praying louder. It actually has to do with you standing and leaning on the love of God, standing in this grace. And the fruit of this environment where we lead with faith, Verse one and two, faith in Jesus Christ, stand on grace. At the end, let his love pour out on us and his Holy Spirit will do it and move among us. In the middle is the good work, is the fruit. Where actually, no matter what the devil sends you, you'll just be like, oh man, I glory in this because I know what's on the other side. I know what's coming. You know, the Bible actually has these audacious statements like, like these trials and tribulations are bread for us. Like the giants are our food. Like when a trial comes, it's actually for my nourishment. Now, it's not to say, hey, let's, be, let, let's, let's, let's look at this in a weird way. Like we want you to suffer, but actually you become so confident in God's hand and God's presence that what comes against you, you just know as you lean on him. See, it's not for you to pick it up and try fight this. It's for you to lean on him. And what happens then is the fruit is that you just conquer. But beware of condemnation and accusation and picking up what the Bible calls reproach, where it's you're the problem because then you will try to fix the problem and you will fail at fixing the problem. And then you will start to say, I don't qualify for God's love because I haven't done enough. I've actually failed him. And this is how the devil keeps us in a perpetual cycle of defeat. Now, if we look at this from, a, from an example, let's really quickly, for time's sake, jump into a story. How, how many of you know that David is a picture of Jesus? All right, we, we look through our Old Testament and we see shadows of Christ. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 22, I wanna tell you that I, I'm so excited about this passage of scripture because I know this church is gonna do amazing things in this nation for God. Amazing things. I mean, I promise you, God is, it's not just gonna be about, hey, what has been done. Let's talk about what God's gonna do in our country. And so the interesting thing here is, I'm gonna qualify all of you and myself today to be a part of David's army, all right? So some of you think, let's accomplish great things for God. I wanna accomplish great things for God. I wanna be a part of an army that does amazing things for God. But you know what qualifies you today? It's not actually being a very credible, long history, long serving, solid, amazing, great CV'd Christian. Let's look at what David's army looked like, right? David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. That's a cool group of people. (laughs) Distress. Debt, discontent. Distressed, in debt, discontent. 
That's it. There isn't one person that's normal in that group. Or should I say that's winning in that group? I mean, it doesn't go on to say that's half of them. The other half were at peace, rich, and completely content. No, it actually says the people that gathered to David, like that sums up every area issue of life. Distress, in debt, discontent, right? Thank you, Jesus. I can say I'm a part of those people. All right. So here's where the story takes a turn. So he, being David, became captain over them. This is what it's all about. Jesus being our captain. Jesus being in charge. Jesus leading the army. Because we see how who's gathered. And it then actually mentions there was about 400 men with him. That's about the size of our church if we only count the men at the moment. So it's quite cool because I can identify. And trust me, I'm not David yet, okay? Now, I'm with you in the discontented, uh, discontented, discontented, distressed, in debt people. All right? First Chronicles 20, verses 4 through 8, lists what starts to happen. Now it happened after with that war broke out at Giza with the Philistines, at which time Sabachai the Hushatite killed Sapai, who was one of the sons of the giant, being Goliath, and they were subdued. Again, there was war with the Philistines and Elhanan, the son of Jair, killed Lummi, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Yet again, there was war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature, 24 fingers, 24 toes, six on each hand, six on each foot. He was also born to the giants. We've seen this whole bloodline of Goliath is getting wiped out. So when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shammai, David's brother, killed him. These were born to the giants in Gath and they fell at the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. These 400 distressed, discontented, in debt group of misfits under David start wiping everybody out. Interesting fact, you know Goliath had four brothers and they were all present at the, at the initial battle with David and Goliath, which is why David took five stones because he actually intended to wipe them all out. But the four ran once he knocked Goliath down. By the way, it was with five stones, not 10. Just let's keep on moving. So 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses eight through 17 says some more stuff. These are the mighty names of the men whom David had. Joseph, Basabeth, the Tekamai, chief among the captains. He was called uh, Adino the Esnite because he had killed 800 men at one time. Listen, that's UFC on another level, right? And after him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo. So even if you come from a Dodo, God can use you. <laughs> the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered for battle and the men of Israel had retreated. So they defied the Philistines, but the, but the Israelites behind them, Baal, this is what happens. He arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to plunder. So the guys who ran away got to come back and plunder after he defeated them. And after him was Shammah, the son of Aji, the Hararite. The Philistines had gathered together in a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines. But he stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it and killed the Philistines. The Lord brought about a great victory. Then the three of the 30 chief 
men went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam. And the troop of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew the water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. Now, if you carry on reading through 2 Samuel, you see a whole bunch of other mighty men, but they never, ever get put in context in the Bible as being on the same level as these three. And the interesting thing about these three is not actually specifically what they accomplished for the kingdom of Israel, but they are identified by the fact that when they heard David cry for something from his heart, they went and got it. Now, let me just say this. God wants us in an intimacy with our King Jesus because it's not just about accomplishments for the kingdom's sake. It's not about you serving. It's not about how many hours you're putting in, how much money you give. It's about being connected to the heart of our King. And to be mighty in the kingdom is to be connected to his heart. The other thing that's interesting about these three is if you look at their names, their names give you an amazing picture. But, but even um, uh, Joshua Basabeth in the King James actually calls it sat in the seat. His name actually means he who rests in the Lord. That's the one who killed 800 people. So we have rest as a subject. The second thing is we have the Ahohite. The second name is actually given to the brother of rest. We see rest is a picture here, resting in the finished work. But in this whole subject, I want to highlight this. If you read through all the mighty men in the Bible, all the mighty men, there's someone missing in this passage of Scripture named Joab. And Joab was one of David's main men. He was actually the captain of the God. And I need to highlight this for you today because he's not listed in this passage of scripture as any of, as one of David's mighty men. But he is listed as the brother of Joab was a mighty man. The armor bearer of Joab was a mighty man. And God sovereignly moved Joab as the list under the mighty men. But he accomplished a lot for the kingdom. Do you want to know why he was removed? Because David sent him on a special mission. And the mission was that he would go and get David's son, Absalom, who had rebelled against David. And David's instruction was, go get my rebellious son and bring him back safely to me. Joab went out, being somebody who accomplished a lot in the kingdom, killed a lot of bad guys, was the captain of his God, was the main oak out there for David. And he kills Absalom because he executes justice. Jesus doesn't want his faithful to go out there and kill the rebellious lost son. He wants them brought back safely. In other words, anybody out there living in a lost life, missing out on the goodness of God, living in the darkness of sin, it's not our job to judge and kill them. 
It's our job to find them and bring them home safely. And if we become judgmental, if we become self-righteous and decide to take them out because we are deserving and they are not, you put yourself in a very dangerous place with God. It's irrelevant what you've accomplished for the kingdom. If you go out in a legalistic manner to take people out, you're not a part of the mighty men. But as we see this context, there's two things I draw comfort from today. Are you in distress? Are you discontented? Are you in debt? Hey, it's not about where you're at. It's about who's your captain. The second thing is, be close to his heart. Don't be stressed about the things for the kingdom. Be stressed about being connected to the king. Because if you're just connected to him, you'll be close enough to do the most needed things. You'll, you'll hear his heartbeat. You'll be spirit-led. And although achieving things are great, God wants you connected to his heart. He wants you to be a part of that. And our job is to go and find the lost and bring them back. And you know what's interesting? Under the old covenant, warfare was kill the baddies. Under the new covenant, it's love the baddies. Save the baddies. Bring healing to the baddies. Bring restoration to the broken. The agenda is now, we're out there to transition people from lost to being found. To point them to a God who's too good to be true. To defend God, not by executing judgment, but by pointing people to the judgment that has taken place. Let them know about how judged they are in Christ Jesus. If you would just get in Christ Jesus, my friend, every single sin would be removed. Every single issue, every, all forms of restoration. If only you would just respond to the grace of God, your whole life would change. That's our mission. That's our mandate. That's what the army of God is now called to do. Love the widows. Feed the poor. Point people to Jesus. And today, we don't stand in works we don't, face, we don't face issues and trials and tribulations with the burden on our shoulders. We receive the fact that if we would receive Jesus' finished work and stand in grace, let his love pour out on us. You know what you'll do? You'll look upon tribulations and you will not even know how this has happened, but you'll go, I glory in it. Because I know my security is not in what's going on around me, but in who I know. And I know also this, the Bible never, ever, ever proclaims a permanent proclamation over your trial and tribulation in this way. You will never stay there. If you're in the valley of the shadow of death, you're walking through it. If you're in the midst of a storm, you're going through it. No matter what is positioned against you, God says, I will position these giants for bread for you, for your nourishment, for your consumption, that whatever comes your way, people will look around and go, how did you get over that? How did you deal with bankruptcy? How did you deal with a failed relationship? How did you deal with a, a, a terminal proclamation over your life with you, with you? You know what you would say? Not I. Interesting thing. Guy who kills 800. Like every single person in there that does something significant, do you know what it says at the bottom of the passage? The victory came by the Lord. You'll just point to Jesus. If only you would know who I know, you would see the same victories in your life. That will be your countenance. That's what faith in troubled times is all about. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to this message today by Pastor Josh. We really trust that it blessed you. For more grace-filled messages like this, check out our website at www.redemptionchurch.co.za. 
If this message or any other message has impacted your life, we'd love to hear about it. So please email it to testimony at redemptionchurch.co.za. And remember, if you're ever in the Johannesburg area, come and visit us. We'd love to meet you.